Okay, so first of all, um, I'm going to present myself because of course you don't know me uh, as I'm an international guest here. Um, and so who am I? I'm actually a teacher educator. I was looking for the word in children's literature and language didactics. That actually means that I am teaching at a teacher training college uh, for primary school teachers. Uh, that's what I normally do, but actually this year I took the year off to do some writing and I'm also self-employed. Uh, so I'm web editor of www.psychosenet.be, which is a website um, that provides, let's say, objective and above all hopeful information on psychosis or whatever you call it, but that's a common word for it. Um, I was during three years a member of the Belgian Superior Health Council uh, who formulated an advice on the DSM-5 and how to use that. And I'm the coordinator of the master uh, class recovery oriented psychiatry at the University of Ghent. Um, so far I've written like uh, four books and I, I'm always a bit, always a bit like I feel like bragging when I tell people like, oh, I'm a writer. But then after all, my husband says, okay, Brenda, you've written like four books now. Okay, let's just call you a writer. So I'm, I'm a bit of a writer too. <laughs> um, but above all, above all these things, I'm a mother and I'm married to uh, Jan, uh, which is actually sort of John in English. And he's actually the best husband you can have. So I'm sorry if you thought you had him. I'm sorry, got it taken. Uh, and I have three terrific sons, if they don't disturb me during a webinar, of uh, 11, 10, and uh, 8 years old. And they're really great, great boys. But during Corona, it can get tough. <laughs> but next slide, what can you expect in my short uh, half an hour? First, I'm going to tell you about my experience in mental health care. I will be actually pretty brief on that because I will sort of summarize it and then immediately uh, try to connect this with the Chime Detar model, which is from um, Slate and Stewart, and they have this like whole model on how to recover. And um, I'm sort of trying to connect my story with that model. And then I have this, this sounds really like useful, like tips and tricks. And that uh, sounds like it's really easy. How can we, uh, deal with people with psychosis. Oh, and give you some tips and tricks. Of course, it's not that easy, but I thought, okay, let's just name it like that. And then if you still have some questions or reflections, you can share them. Although Ron is gonna sort of gather them, he's gonna look at them because I'm not. I know they say that women can multitask, but I'm not gonna challenge myself. I'm just gonna focus on the webinar. And in the end, we're gonna have a look at um, the questions you might have or the things you wanna say. Okay, let's get started. Uh, all kids are gone now, the dog's quiet, this should work. <laughs> now, first of all, my experience in mental health care, like you see, I've written down everything actually in this book. And of course, there's a lot of people from uh, the US, so you know, of course, that mom is mom. Um, and this is actually my story. It started in 2012 after I gave birth to my third son. And apparently three sons is just too much that sort of drives you mad because uh, after about three months, I suffered from a postpartum psychosis. Uh, and I was admitted in three different psychiatric wards in the period of time. And actually 
in all these different wards in 2012, which is, let's say, a long time ago, I didn't have a good experience. There was a lot that hurt and there wasn't a lot that helped, unfortunately. Um, I'm just going to read out one small, small bit so that it's, a, it's sort of in a nutshell, my experience. And um, it's our, it starts with an excerpt from the um, uh, nurse's report. And it's from my book. Upon arrival, the patient is extremely manic, uninhibited, aggressive, and paranoid, psychotic. She sees Jesus and thinks that Dutru is abusing her children. Dutru is a child molester. She violently resists her admission in every possible way, bites, scratches, spits. Her thinking is extremely associative. The woman is so agitated that, that she must be cared for in seclusion. I fought like an animal that was cornered, like a lioness, like a beast, and that is how they treated me. It was dark in the room, which was only a few square meters large. A dim spot cast a watery light on the bare gray walls. A steel toilet without a toilet seat. A roll of toilet paper on the floor near the iron door. There was a small window in the iron door. There was another window in the room. The blinds were closed. A clock ticked gently on the window sill. There was a bed in the middle of the room. I was lying on the bed. Leather straps pinned my hands and feet to the bed with a screw. There was a third strap around my waist, which forced me to lay on my back. I was wearing a dark blue shapeless gown to cover my naked body. The rough fabric grazed my breasts, my swollen nipples, shooting pain in my engorged breasts. Milk was oozing out of my left nipple towards my armpit. Where was Zen? Where were Yip and Lom? Where was Yum? Where was I? It sort of tells you how I was feeling and how I felt during my whole time in the psychiatric ward is I didn't have a clue where I ended up and I was sort of confronted with a world I didn't know anything about and that had rules, had protocols and even had a language that somehow I didn't speak or didn't understand. So Every hospital I went to, I sort of ended up in seclusion rooms. And that was because every time they took my baby away. And apparently, if you take my baby away, I sort of turn into this <laughs> lion, lioness. And so that wasn't a good um, first impression, of course, of the psychiatric ward. But besides that, I also had a lot of difficulties with the therapies that were given because I didn't know what they were for. Nobody actually told me what they were for. And because I couldn't be at home with my children because I was compulsory admitted, I didn't get it. So I had to do like household therapy. And then once in a week when my husband came along, when he was allowed to come along, um, then he said like, oh, I don't know how I can do this with the children and the cooking and the laundry. And I was like, yeah, but I'm, I'm doing like household therapy here. I mean, I should be doing household therapy in there. So I was constantly confronted with a sort of system and I didn't know why I was doing things. And they gave me like mandalas to color. And I know now that a lot of people during these Corona times are coloring mandalas. I hate it. And my children asked me, mama, why, why are, are you like coloring and coloring books? And I was like, I don't know. They just give this to me. They say it's, it's going to work. So there was this sort of <laughs> communication problem that we had. And I was compulsory admitted and it took me about three months. I went out, in again, out again, because yeah, the 
the psychosis wasn't really under control. And in the end, I had this compulsory admittance during 40 days. And when these 40 days was, were over, I, I really had the impression like I was very critical. I was always asking, why do I have to do this? We're not starting on time. Why is that? So I, was, I, was, I wasn't really a nice patient either. But the thing was that somebody told me like, Brenda, don't be so assertive. Don't be so critical. Just try to adjust. Don't just do what they tell you. And after a while, I... I got it. Yeah, I had to do what they told me. And I sort of lost myself because I didn't know who Brenda was anymore because I'm not the obedient type. <laughs> so I got out finally after 40 days of compulsory admittance. And then my recovery process still had to start. And I had to look, I, I, I want to look for a psychiatrist who, who actually want to do something what, what the psychosis was telling me. Because what happened to the psychiatric ward is that everything about the psychosis was like covered up. Was, oh no, we're not going to talk about it because if you talk about it, you might get more psychotic. And I, for me, it was very important that we could talk about what was in the psychosis. It was telling me something, but I didn't know what it was telling me. So I looked for a psychiatrist who did that with me and that was very helpful. And I have a GP who's got this really holistic view. And he said, okay, Brenda, we're gonna give you, we're gonna put you on a diet, no chocolate, really no chocolate. Okay, uh, no sugar, no alcohol, uh, we'll, do, we'll do some sports. Um, yeah, so, he, so he, he saw it as a bit of a holistic way of looking at things. So I had to change the way I eat, what I drink. Um, he subscribed me like to go to a, a physiotherapist every week and have like a, a massage head to toe every week. That was great. And it's actually one of the things I use first when I have the impression that things are just way too much. The first thing I do is I don't go to a psychiatrist. I don't go to a psychologist. I go to the physiotherapist to have a massage. <laughs> And uh, I followed the course of mindfulness and I started doing voluntary work because I thought it was so important to have the idea that I could do something, that I could mean something for someone. And so gradually, somehow, maybe it's time, maybe it's my warm family. It's so difficult to tell what actually helped me, what made me recover. It's a whole list of things that helped and we're going to look at it in a minute. But I can say that I am recovered now. And the thing is that when my uh, book was published, Psychotic Mom, which in the Dutch translation was published in 2014, I ended my book. I'm sorry, this is like spoiler alert because I'm going to read the ending. <laughs> I didn't know anything about recovery. I just thought like we're going to talk about cure, right? I didn't know that in um, mental health care you couldn't talk about cure you can only talk about recovery. Well, this is what I wrote, like the last sentences is, I've come a long way. Some would say that I've recovered. I will only consider myself to be fully recovered when I have achieved three things. I wanted to start working again, check. I wanted to phase out the medication, check. And I wanted to write a book, check. So the funny thing is that the way I talk about it in the book is that I actually sort of afterwards I saw that we have like different forms of recovery and clinical recovery for me was that I could phase out the medication and I'm now off medication since five years now and my social recovery is that I really wanted to work and for me it was really 
important to to have to feel like I could mean or do something for other people. And I'm a teacher, so I wanted to do something for children or my students. Or, and the last thing was my personal recovery was, I wanted to do something that I was good at. And well, the thing was, as a kid, I always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know what to t- what to write about. And then I got this like psychosis as a gift. <laughs> so inspirational and it turned me into a writer so i can say that i'm recovered now but now look at it let's look at it in detail now if you look at a chime this guy i think he's from england or something in 2012 he said like we've got these certain key characteristics uh, for recovery and the first thing is connectedness and he's right i think for me to recover i, I at first i needed well i needed to be connected with peers, people with lived experience who could tell me that they experienced that as well and things were going to get okay. That was really important for me, like connection with peers, but more important maybe was the connection with my family. And that was like really a pity because you got this like idea in psychiatric wards that the cause of your problem might lie within the family. So they sort of don't want to involve them but for me my family was part of my solution and i also think that my family and my friends this is the environment i belong to and this is why you have to involve them from the start because you have to give them tools you have to you have to involve them right away and i have to be connected with my husband and at the beginning we weren't connected at all it felt like he was like one of the caretakers always checking up on me did you take your medication like it was he didn't listen to me and then afterwards there was this sort of tipping point when i had so many side effects of the medication i was trembling i was it was terrible. And he said to the doctor, doctor, this isn't my wife anymore. And the doctor said, yes, but she, she will, she is, because this is what she will be like in the future. And then he said, then I'm getting her out of here. And that's when you started to connect again. I felt hurt again. So connectedness is a very important characteristic in my recovery, at least. The age of hope is so important. And I think we can see it now with the whole Corona uh, times is that we need perspective we need to know that this is going to end and if we know it's going to end we can keep up with this but if people say this will be forever i don't know if we can and that was the thing as well they told me yeah you've got this like a chronic disease you'll have to take medication for the rest of your life they didn't give me any perspective and i do think that it's better to give false hope than false hopelessness because they don't know, do they? They don't know who will recover, who, who, who won't. So, and I, I see that with my two students as well. If they ask me, miss, am I still going to pass for the exam? And I tell them no. Well, most of them don't start to study anymore. They don't want to prove me wrong. Although I must say that, although my future wasn't very hopeful, I decided to prove them wrong. And I do think that hope is one of the most important things in recovery. The eye of identity. I think it's it's a psychiatric, what do you call it? It's like psychiatric problems. It's it it's touches you within your identity. And I know like all these campaigns, like for instance, bipolar, they say, I'm uh, you you have a bipolar disease. I am not, you're you're not your disease, you have a disease. 
it's such a load of bullshit actually because if you talk about psychiatric problems there are actually people who are telling that the way you think the way you feel and the way you behave is disturbed okay if they judge the way you think the way you feel and the way you behave what's left of your identity so they are judging your identity and i wrote in my book and that was actually from my diary in 2013 i had like a whole um um list of things that i felt i worried about like i i worry because I don't accept what has happened to me, because I don't understand why this has happened to me, because I seem to see everything in a negative light, because I'm merely a shadow of myself, because we have a leaky roof, because I'm unemployed, and this goes on and on and on. And in the end, there's just one sentence that I keep on repeating, and that's because I miss me, because I miss me, because I miss me, because I miss me, because I miss, this goes on. And the thing is, it's a loss of my identity. And I had to look for me all over again. And that's so difficult. And then you need people who knew you from the start in a way. Then there was this one guy when I did voluntary work. I did that in the Museum of Gislain, which is in Ghent. It's the Museum of Psychiatry. And I was editing some text there. And he said, you're a teacher, right? why don't you guide the people in the museum? And I was like, no, no, I can't, I can't. No, I feel so insecure, no, no. He said, no, it's your talent. It has always been your talent. It's not gone. It might be a bit dusty, but we'll help you with that. Come on, we believe in you. And that's what you need. You need people who believe in you, who, who sort of recover, rediscover your identity. Um, and then of course, um, Meaning was for me very important as well. I think a lot of people who suffer from psychiatric problems or whatever, they, it has such an impact on their life and they want to sort of give it meaning. They want to do something with this experience. That's why so many people turn into peer support workers because they want to help others. They want to make this experience useful in a way. But also meaning in psychosis, for me, it meant that I wanted to know what the psychosis was telling me. And it's a bit like a nightmare. It's like when you, when you have a nightmare and in the, in, at night and you come at breakfast and you're like, oh, I had this terrible nightmare. And everyone's like, mm -hmm, yeah, but yeah, okay, whatever. We just move on. And that's not what you want. You want to talk about it. And you might be looking for signals or what does that mean, you think? But they don't do that a lot with psychosis because they're afraid you might get more psychotic. And I do think that meaning is very important in my recovery. And I, and I did find meaning in my psychosis. And then the E of empowerment, which is so important because I had the feeling that I couldn't do anything anymore. And you, you need people who see your talents again. And that's apparently very difficult for people to see because they only focus on what you cannot do and what's abnormal. And I was, for instance, at the psychiatric ward, I was singing all the time because I like singing. And they were like, okay, do, go to your room, Brenda. Come on, stop singing. And you're annoying us and whatever. And I'm like, why don't you organize like this little concert for me? Just use my strengths, show me what, me, what I've got because I don't see it anymore. And why don't they let me see it anymore so empowerment is for me very important and that's why my writing was so important because it showed me that i could do something very well and that was the writing now that was slate and then stewart came up in 2017 and said sorry i have to add some things there and he added like difficulties because it's not 
because you recovered that you're like that you don't have any difficulties anymore and for me um i don't i don't see like i'm not confronted with difficulties anymore as i see it it's like there are things in life that come across on my path and i just try to deal with them and what we do with psychosis is we sort of try to keep away the people away from the difficulties but we should sort of strengthen them to confront them with difficulties that will come up um so and i'm not afraid to have a relapse or whatever because i know that if i fall i can get up again and there's therapeutic input that helped me again as well because i had a very good psychiatrist in the end and I had a very good psychologist who gave me tips and tricks like, okay, Brenda, if there's just too, too many ideas, try reading a book. Can you still read a book and focus? Can you do a nap during daytime? It's like really tips and tricks to help me. And I still use them. I still do that. Um, the writing has helped me a lot in a therapeutical way as well. But I don't see a psychiatrist anymore and I don't see a psychologist anymore because I actually have a garden. It's a great garden. And then we have acceptance. Um, and sometimes they say like recovery is possible if you accept that you, that you, that you have a disease. That sounds really like, really like a mind fuck. That sounds like if you sort of recognize, if you know that you're ill, then you're cured. Duh. So I think that accepting doesn't mean accepting your illness. It means accepting who you are. And it means accepting yourself with all your vulnerabilities, but as well with all your strengths. And also accepting the moment. Um, I've got times when I don't feel well and I just accept it. And I know that there will be a next day that I will feel different. I don't try to think about what's coming up in two years and 10 years. I'm not afraid of a relapse because I'm living now and I'm I know today was a good day. Tomorrow will be different, but we'll see. There's always another day. And the last one is the R of return to normality. And I feel that it's a bit strange, but last couple of months, I've been in this stage completely. Like um, I was psychotic in 2012. In 2014, the book appeared and I wrote editorials. I was on television shows. I was fighting for the rights of psychiatric patients and everything i did so much i did so my best and somehow i'm done now <laughs> and it's not completed at all no because some things have changed but a lot of things haven't and i don't want to quit um because i'm tired but but maybe i'm just I want to be me again, like I want to be the teacher again, because what happens is I do suffer a lot from the stigma. And as long as I keep on giving lectures like these, so this is very unique that you still can hear my story, people will always see me as a psychiatric patient and I'm so much more. And I feel now that it's maybe time to return to not my old life because it will never be the same. I'm so much wiser. But I do feel that maybe this is part of my recovery as well, that I want to move on. And I've written a children's book now, like uh, this is how can we talk with children about psychiatric problems. And I feel this is where I want, what I want to do. Like I want to use my knowledge as a teacher with my experience as with psychosis or psychiatric problems or whatsoever 
but I don't want to be just a psychiatric patient anymore. So with the last five minutes that are left, <laughs> I'm gonna quickly jump through some tips and tricks and we'll start with the first one and that's don't overreact. It's very strange, but if somebody turns up with a psychosis, in Belgium at least, people are like, oh, psychosis, we have to do something. Give her medication. That's about the first thing they do. And that's very strange because it's very intrusive. <laughs> it's just a syringe uh, with some chemicals and it sort of changes you. And it's not good for your first impression either. So I do think that the first thing you should do is, how are you? What has happened? And how can you help you? And not the overreacting and really, even if I'm like three, four days more psychotic, that's okay. It's really not true that my brain cells are sort of dying there. It's okay. So don't overreact. Second of all, look at the context. So they saw this like aggressive woman, but actually it's a mother whose baby is taken away. And if you look at the context, you might understand the behavior. Involve family and friends. These are the ones who have to deal with the patient in the end so they 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 are so important because there was like and probably you've seen it now for for the last 20 minutes like the caretakers were always saying like oh she's too energetic she's too energetic oh manic manic and then my husband said that that's actually my wife she she, she is like this you know but they didn't want to listen it's like my family my friends they know who i am and they actually, they, they sort of made a sort of, in, in, they didn't want to, let's say, uh, make a restoration. They want to renovate me into something completely different. And they've got the plans. My family, they have the plans, how, how I am. So you have to involve them from the start. Don't label, that's a difficult one because they're giving you like diagnosis and a diagnosis. For me, I know for some people it's a relief. For me, it was, terrible that was like my life's over i don't have any perspective at all and the problem was that everything i did was part of my diagnosis well it's not true it's me and i have a lot of talents and a lot of strengths make shared decisions they were talking about medication and i already had had some medication i said i've been taking this and then they said yeah we don't know that we're gonna take abilify because we know that so it's like, why did you take this? Yeah, but we don't know that. So we're not really talking to each other. They don't rely on what I say. They don't trust me. They don't want to take risk. I'm, I'm not really, I'm not really in the conversation. They're just talking about me, <laughs> but I'm not like involved in the process. Empower, that's what I said. Look at the talents and the strengths. There was this psychologist um, I spoke to and his colleague psychologist, he uh, uh, was going to retire. And one of the patients had to go to him, to the other psychologist. And he said, okay, what happened? And he started talking about the trauma and child blues. And, and then the psychologist said, yeah, and what is she good at? And the psychologist said, I don't know. We've never talked about it. And then I think, okay, so you've got like one hour talking with the patient. And if you're only talking about all these terrible things, then of course you're not happy, happy, joy, joy outside. Sometimes you do have to talk about the good things, no? So empower, I think it's important. Treat as an equal, that's very, very difficult because people, caretakers seem to think that there has to be some sort of professional distance. And I had this like nurse and she said to me, how are you Brenda, how are the kids? Your head is always tilted when they ask you, how are you, how are the kids? And I was like, yeah, fine, 
how are your kids? And they were like, oh no, she's asked about my kids. And I said, yeah, you don't want to say that really. Yeah, because you know that if you talk about your children, I will come out and I will kill them all. Now, humor is not something that they like in psychiatric wards, but somehow it's, it's not normal that a psychiatric nurse can say, oh my God, I have such a bad day. Yeah, it's like they're all very perfect and oh, everything's so well with you. So that's why I say like, just treat as a human being. We all have our days off, right? Be respectful. I had this nurse when I was like strapped down in, um, the, in the seclusion room. And every time she entered, she knocked the door and then she said, excuse me, am I disturbing you? <laughs> and I was like, uh, no, not doing anything, right? Respect is in small gestures. That's one of them. Listen, and that's uh, probably one of my most important tips, <laughs> I might say, is that, of course, I've studied literature, but what I see is that caretakers are, look, are constantly looking whether the thing that the person with the psychosis is saying, is that true or not? Is that reality or not? I think a psychosis can be read as a kind of book, a fiction book. And maybe it's not all true, but the feelings are true and the themes are true and the motives are true. You can analyze it and you, there's so much information there. And if you just don't listen, you're losing. You're, you're actually, you're not, you, you don't have the key. I think the key is listening. And last but not least, like I said, and that's why I repeat it, never give up hope you should give hope if this is it if you say what you're feeling now you're feeling terrible okay that's what you're gonna feel the rest of your life that's not gonna work so you have to give people hope and so that's what i have i'm still very hopeful about the future and very happy that i'm talking to you now and so this brings me to the end if you have questions please share them with Ron. Uh, we'll deal them afterwards, I think, and your reflections as well. And if you want to have a look at the book, pro the problem is they're all stored in, the, in Europe, but you can have a look and they might get to you in a way. People from UK and everything in Europe are more fortunate. Yeah, Up to you, Ron. As far as the book, I think if you email us that we will then um, find a way to get the book. We'll work something out with Brenda. I don't know exactly what that'll be, but um, you have the same email. You, um, If you just respond to the emails about this webinar, um, I'll collect those and, and we'll find a way to get books to people. So I'm going to turn it over to Dimitri now So because we want you to get another view and then, then we'll make our questions in, in response to to both presentations. So, so, um, and Brenda, if you could stop your yeah. screen sharing. Yeah, great. I will. <laughs> Thanks so much, Brenda, for that. Um, it's definitely a lot of great insights from hearing about your experience. So very grateful for you um, giving this webinar with me. Appreciate it. Um, hello, everyone. So my name is Dimitri. I've been hearing voices for over 10 years now. At the same time, I'm happily married have a job, and really am able to live the life that I want. Um, I also don't identify with the term psychosis. Um, I have kind of my own views on the medical model and what is happening within our community. And I really try to advocate um, for, for giving our community, the lived experience community, more of a voice in describing our experience and more of a place in sharing the tools and strategies um, for, for having a high quality life, whatever that means to each of us when, when these things happen. Um, so that's gonna be my presentation is a bit more about 
what I felt was lacking um, in the in the medical model approach that I experienced and some of my suggestions. And uh, just confirming, everyone can see my screen, right? Ron or Brenda, if you could. Great, okay. So explaining voice hearing, uh, I wanna begin by, by somewhat grounding this conversation to what I call reality. Um, for those of you who have never heard voices, I ask you this question, have you ever worried about your socks matching? You know, just that the colors of your socks match. Um, for most of you, the answer will of course be yes. Technically, this means that you're being delusional and paranoid about a hallucination. Uh, colors don't actually exist. Um, you know, most physicists will tell you that, some schools teach that in high school. They're really just wavelengths that are being absorbed and reflected and then our brain converts it into the experience of color, meaning it's something happening inside our brain. Before the webinar, we had this poll on the dress in this slide to prove the point. Um, about two thirds of you are seeing blue and black. One third of you are seeing gold and white. Um, the reality of course is that the dress doesn't have any color to begin with. It just has certain wavelengths that we hallucinate into color. Some cultures such as the Himba tribe don't see the color blue meaning if you show them 10 squares and one is blue and the rest are green, um, they will not be able to tell you which square is different. They, they just don't see blue. There's kind of a lot of this conversation about, um, are we even seeing the same colors? What does this mean? But it's not a problem because even though we're all hallucinating color all the time, um, it's completely internally consistent with our belief structure about the world, we, we know how to live in a world with this extra stimulus and we know how to be externally compatible with it. We even have entire industries, fashion, um, dedicated to, to making money off of this hallucination. And everyone just goes along with it because we all have it in common. So it doesn't cause any problems for us um, with our community or with our society because it's a hallucination that we all share. Now with that, I want you to imagine if it wasn't a hallucination that we all shared. That if you saw color, but not everyone did. And instead of trying to understand your experience, everyone was just telling you to ignore it, uh, to accept that the world is colorless. Um, and that the fact that you were seeing color was some kind of breakdown of, of your very brain. It would be very unpleasant, of course. Um, I'm gonna give you just two or three seconds to really think about that what it would be like if the world tried to convince you that you were insane for seeing things in color, which is actually a hallucination. Yeah. And uh, I said also delusional and paranoid. Um, delusional is that you're acting on this hallucination according to the medical model. And paranoid is that the socks are actually under your pants or in your shoes. Most people will never see them. So you're, you're making a big deal out of this hallucination. And, letting it affect your social interactions. Um, I want to kind of ground the voicing experience with another reality check for those who don't actually go through it. Um, according to most estimates, between five to 13% of the human population will hear voices during their lifetime. Uh, about 7% do so more frequently or do, do so frequently. Um, how do we decide what it means to hear voices? Well, it was sort of decided uh, a long time ago before anybody knew anything about telephones or internet 
modern physics, modern biology, it was decided that it was madness a long time ago and never really reopened for discussion. Um, all good science starts with observation, right? While we have hundreds of millions of people that are experiencing something, and essentially we are being told to shut down our beliefs, um, to ignore it, and to accept that we are broken for reporting something that we observe and that feels real to us. And we are asked to do this without anybody being able to prove with studies partnered between psychiatrists and, and physicists to definitively prove um, forever that it's medical model. So I understand that, of course, medical model is very popular, especially in the West. Um, but it, it is very strange to have hundreds of millions of people being told that they have to ignore their experience by those people who have never even been through it. And uh, it's, it's not like a small ask. If you've ever had a political debate with your family members, um, you know, where they disagree with you on, on your political party or something like that, you know how hard it is to get somebody to change one of their beliefs. Um, you have to talk them through it. You have to provide reasons. You have to answer their perspectives. Um, with people who hear voices, we're not given this courtesy by mainstream society. We're not guided from our framework into the medical model. More often, it's much more of a hostile shutdown um, that our perspectives, our beliefs have to be broken um, in order for us to be quote unquote fixed by believing in our insanity rather than our perception of the world. Um, to describe a bit more of what the experience is like, it's, it's pretty similar to living in Twitter and uh, like 2020 Twitter, not, not 2012 Twitter that was much nicer. Um, you know, you're trying to pay attention to the world and a voice pops up in your stream and most of the times it's a troll that's just being mean for no reason. Not for everybody, for some people they have very friendly voices that are guides and mentors. Um, but, but there are a lot of people that kind of have this Twitter troll that just interrupts the stream of consciousness as opposed to the Twitter stream. It's also fairly similar to being in a waking dream where you have the same characters um, every night when you go to sleep and the stories advance and you grow to care about them um, and you never wake up. But it's, it's not that we believe it, most of us believe it to be a, a full reality and absolute truth, but if you had the same characters and the same storylines every single day and began to care about them, they would become part of your life. Uh, so again, this kind of very fierce approach uh, of crushing our belief structure in favor of medical model could actually do a lot of damage. And I'm gonna talk about a bit more about that and some alternatives that I propose. So modern medicine, um, I am grateful for, for people who go through medical training to help others. I am grateful for those who become psychologists to help guide people through their adversities. Um, but I also want to be honest and speak that when it comes to hearing voices, modern pharmacology is kind of like a dartboard for the people that have difficulties. It's sort of like, let's try a bunch of different medicines and see if something helps. Um, you know, it's, it's not even like when you're helping somebody through depression where there's a treatment plan. It very much is a, we're not sure what's going on, let's just try a bunch of things. Hopefully something will work. Now, even with this limited stage of modern science, scientific understanding within the medical model, uh, there's enormous pressure on the families to form medical compliance. And this creates consequences that uh, providers never, never witness firsthand. Um, when our family members move from being our friends to, to being our, our watchers, 
um, to kind of making sure that we are staying on course and, and following medical compliance, there's some significant pain and damage that happens to the relationships. Um, it no longer feels fair, especially while our beliefs are being torn down to, to kind of bring the family members on the side um, of those who say, well, no, we don't actually know what this is, but you have to trust us and uh, admit your own insanity is a, is a very painful wound. Um, and like Brenda was saying, there's a lot of prescribed hopelessness that goes along with that, not only for ourselves, but for our families, that the best they will ever accomplish is symptom management. Um, I, I am grateful. I want to say I'm being a bit harsh. I am grateful for those within the medical model that truly want to help people. I am. And I appreciate the long training and the long experience that goes with it. But I, I feel that as a community, we need to have a more honest conversation uh, about humility, humility of where the medicine is up to, humility of understanding our situation. Um, and that when you're telling a family member and, and a patient that they will be attacked by hostile voices for the rest of their lives, you're doing a lot of damage. Um, whereas having more humility would really help. I also want to quickly point out, you know, in the medical model where voices are coming from our subconscious, being told that they are going to be hostile, doesn't that build a hostile personality? Being told that our voices are gonna tell us to harm self or others, doesn't that create voices that do this very behavior? So in other countries where medical model is not predicting hostile voices, they actually are less hostile. I'll, I'll show a slide on that in a bit. Um, so we need to be more honest about what's going on and, and really listen to the community. So um, in terms of lack of concrete strategies and tools, I don't want to talk negatively of something without presenting an alternative. I understand that most providers are in fact trying their best. Um, so I don't want to turn this into a conflict between experts by training and experts by experience, but rather say there's a lot of room for growth here. And perhaps the people going through it can share the strategies and tools for how they achieve high quality lives. And that could be part of, of what going through voice-based challenges will look like in the future. I call this a voice ecosystem. So it's an alternative to ignoring the voices. Can voices actually be good? Um, anybody who wants the slides later, these are all links. There is a recent shift uh, of engaging with voices and building relationships with them. Um, a Stanford professor found that in cultures where people build these relationships, uh, voices tend to be more positive. They, they motivate, they, they become friends. Um, of course, on the other hand, there's negative voice ecosystems where the voices can wear people down, cause extreme isolation, uh, create delusions and confusion about reality. Um, but all in all, and I use that word delusion with a lot of hesitance, but, but beliefs that are fundamentally incompatible, I would say, with, with the true nature of the world. Um, but all in all, voices are only as bad as what they tell you. So there actually are two roads for those who hear voices. One is to ignore voices and try to get them to go away. The other is to build an ecosystem and manage relationships with your voices. I want to be very clear. If you want to ignore your voices and try to have them go away, you know, that's excellent that you can make that choice and, and I respect you for it. Um, it's your choice. But I, I want the conversation to be honest about two options so that everybody going through it knows there are two roads that they can walk. Um, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. If you want your voices to go away, I actually do believe that ignoring them is probably 
the highest likelihood approach. However, if they end up not going away, then you ignoring them could create a, a hostile relationship with them that will cause a lot more conflict to you than if you have tried to build friendly relationships. And not everybody wants their voices to go away, is able to. Um, not everyone even has negative experiences with their voices. Some people really get value uh, from this phenomenon. So what does a good ecosystem look like? Uh, the first point is that um, the voice here feels themselves to be and is genuinely stronger than their voices, meaning the person is in the driver's seat, the voices are extra stimuli, um, just like color is. And it, it doesn't actually even matter if you think that the stimulus is coming from inside or outside. The point is that it's part of the stimulus in your world, but you are the driver of your experience. That's, that's kind of bullet point number one of a good ecosystem. Um, this comes with significant control on which voices you want to talk to, about what you want to talk, and when uh, your voices get to talk to you. Um, for example, I have a rule with my voices that they can't interrupt me when I'm within 10 feet of a person I care about. Um, I worked very hard to build this rule and, and make it enforced in my ecosystem. And after that, most of the damage that they were doing disappeared because I was able to focus on those around me when I wanted to. Um, so, so that's kind of point number two. Uh, if that sounds like a lot of effort to build your ecosystem, there are strategies for cultivating voice allies who can actually defend you from hostile voices and enforce the agreements you make in your ecosystem without you having to do anything. Um, this is another tool. Quality relationships, infrequent conflict, mutual compassion, um, voices adding meaning to your life. Um, there's, there's a great, a lot of great studies, you know, even partnering with academics. I know there's some hesitance between our communities, but partnering with academics, there's so much evidence that people can use negotiation to set boundaries with their voices and influence the experience. Um, this goes back to, to kind of options, not orders. What do we want from care? We want to be able to make informed choices um, with everything being consented to, as long as we're not a threat to ourselves or others, for everything to be given to us as options that we say, yes, that is what resonates with me, that is what I want to try. Um, when people are not a threat to self or others, it is not the place of the medical community or anybody to say, no, there is only one option and pretend that all these other tools don't exist. Um, the last thing I'll say, probably the most important, not the last thing for the presentation, the last thing on this, the most important part of a voice ecosystem is that everything is internally consistent and externally compatible in your belief structure. So what does that mean? It, it's like seeing colors, right? Um, it is a hallucination, but it doesn't actually bother us because we know how to uh, factor it into our view of the world. It's externally compatible because everyone's going through it. So there are plenty of people on this planet who believe that the earth is flat. Um, they are still accepted by their communities um, and are able to, to have social relationships, even though that is a far stranger belief than believing that something you personally are experiencing may be real. Um, they also have an internally consistent framework that doesn't cause uh, paradoxes, the flat earthers, I mean. Um, it doesn't mean they're right. I am actually positive that the earth is not flat, um, but it, it doesn't interrupt their life. And having strange beliefs should be treated in the same way as, as saying, where is this push for consensus reality coming from? Why must everyone agree 
on what the world is. It doesn't actually matter as long as you have a belief structure that you can live with internally and can interact with your community the way you want externally, whether that means the community you had before or a new community that you can build um, based on your, your new desires for how you want to live. So who gets to decide beliefs? Um, the different frameworks for hearing voices are uh, medical model is the most popular one in uh, the West. Um, the other ones are usually telepathy, spiritual, ancestor technology, alien conspiracy. Um, as I was saying, medical model is the most famous one. It has key advantages, but also disadvantages. So one of, one of the best things for the medical model, and I'll, I'll give it the credit here, um, voices give you a lot of information very fast. And it's easy to choose to believe something and go down a very weird road, like, um, oh, that rock might be talking to me. Oh, if the rock is talking to me, maybe it's an alien. Oh, if it's an alien, maybe it's from Mars. Oh, if it's from Mars, maybe Mars is attacking Earth. Oh, the geologist must be in on it. You know, every single belief could lead you to a next belief that is less um, internally consistent because all of a sudden you have to, in that structure, you start believing that universities are conspiring with geologists to help Mars take over Earth, right? And that's, that's not a belief that you can be externally compatible with, I think. Um, and it's not internally consistent because it'll keep creating these contradictions that if the Martians are invading Earth, the geologists have to be in on it. Um, and and it, that kind of confusion can really wear away at your quality of life. So with the medical model, if you strike at the very first point, no, everything your voices are saying is nonsense, you kind of eliminate everything downstream um, in the beliefs that you build from them. So you're less likely to get confusion. I'll give it that. But you're also a lot less likely to have self-confidence. Um, and there's a great example of people who, in my anecdotal experience, not just from myself, but the many groups I've facilitated, people who have external models are able to go out in the world and treat voices as just another stimulus, spiritual model, right? They go in nature and they think, okay, so the trees happen to talk to me, but they're living life. Whereas with medical model, they're stuck thinking about their own head and kind of self-isolate. Uh, they think that they have something wrong with them. And all of their attention and focus comes on fixing their own head rather than living and enjoying the world. Um, and that problem of isolation and, and kind of the loss of, of confidence happens more in the medical model than any other model. In my experience, most voice hearers will waver between medical and another framework. They kind of um, remain uncertain between medical plus one more. But the, the, the stigma and the absolutism of the medical model has made it so much that we're not even doing basic things um, to help the community based on their beliefs. For example, COVID-19. Um, the people who are in the conspiracy model in, in my community are having a bit of a harder time of it. Um, you know, there's conspiracy theories popping up and the voices can reinforce some of these beliefs. Um, you know, the people who are in the spiritual model tend to be similar to what it was like before COVID-19. This very basic level of acceptance on what another person believes is happening is a great way to know who to reach out to and who to offer extra support to. But in the West, the medical model has come to crush all the other models, um, so much so that even within the medical model, they're not looking at the data points that they can use to help people. So what do I propose? Again, I have respect for expert by training. I have respect for um, the fields of, of medicine. Um, I don't want to simply knock down a current reality without proposing an alternative. 
for me, the most important thing with beliefs is them being internally consistent and externally compatible. So it's more about untying the knots of, of the things that you chose to believe from your voices that led you to, towards confusion. Um, if you could untangle those knots and kind of guide a person into an internally consistent, externally compatible framework, um, then they should be fine. That's at least my experience. Um, for that, you can help them by sorting their beliefs into the things that are definitely true, probably true, definitely not true. Ask them to provide their evidence of why they believe it and kind of identifying the beliefs that don't have enough evidence to, to be in the category the person places them. I'll say that again because it's a bit convoluted. Um, people who hear voices attribute different likelihood to their beliefs from the voices. But putting something in the wrong category could lead to confusion and just like that, untangling it to the correct category of certainty could really let you um, interact with the world uh, with, without suffering significant damage, so to speak. There's other tools such as maybe, you know, avoiding believing a voice or not believing a voice um, when it's giving you information, but just kind of labeling it as maybe until you have more data, whatever to kind of not even engage on certain belief structures that you don't want to incorporate. Um, there's a lot of these tools. External compatibility is another example. I'm just being mindful of my time. Um, degrees of vagueness, right? Let's say you believe that you're in a battle with a demon, um, a specific demon or a specific alien. You might have a hard time finding a community to agree with you, but by moving your experiences like one or two degrees of vagueness, um, that earth is part of the battlefield between God and Satan, all of a sudden you have a community of about a billion people um, believing that, oh, there might be extra extraterrestrial life, you know, without going into the specifics, all of a sudden you have your community there. So having these degrees of vagueness on your belief structure allows you to actually resonate with a lot of people who don't have the stigma of uh, psychosis and, and everything that comes with that term. And finding that community is a great way to, to kind of uh, live life with the beliefs that you want. Um, and contrary to, to mass societal belief, when voice viewers get together, we don't convince each other that spaghetti monsters are, you know, trying to take over our cars or whatever it is. Um, we actually do help each other reality test and, and find logical flaws in, in our belief structure. Um, we just do so while respecting each other's frameworks, kind of navigating each other's belief structure and models for understanding this instead of shutting it down in favor of one dominant view. Of course, building an ecosystem is easier said than done. Um, it requires a lot of work. And uh, right now I'm trying to really create a guide for doing it. it involves mapping the, the stories of your voices, their characters, their motivations, um, even their strengths and weaknesses, identifying the friendly voices who are willing to kind of coexist in harmony from the sabotaging voices who seem to uh, pursue their agendas at the expense of yourself and your ecosystem. It's a lot of mental chess. Um, voices are motivated just like people by perspectives, emotions, cost benefit and opportunities. So you have to navigate this almost like a, a political environment. Um, with that, you want to avoid a dictatorship and just try to, if you try to exert absolute control on your voices or, or subdue them with suffering, your entire ecosystem will crash. So it, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, I think that the advantage that the medical model has is that they've been building on each other for centuries, right? Everybody's able to read the research from the past, 
kind of say, oh, this works, this doesn't work. It still hasn't gotten very far on the topic of hearing voices, but there is generational learning. Uh, the voice hearing community has been discredited for so long that nobody's asked us how we find peace with our situation. So every voice hearer, in a sense, has almost had to build from scratch, just on their own experience. Um, as soon as we talk to each other and say, hey, how did you solve this problem? How did you get a hostile voice to become an ally? And you say, oh, well, I actually understood its motivations and aligned ourselves that, you know, um, we agreed that if, if the voice does this, I'll help it with that. And now we're friends. That's a strategy that could really work for some people. Um, again, options, not orders. Being mindful of the time, I'm going to keep going here. We could circle back on any specifics about building agreements or, or changing the influence of your voices. Um, but it comes back to having confidence in your tools and confidence of yourself as empowered over your voices. Meaning whether they attack you by forcing your attention or kind of attack you with emotional and psychological distress, um, or if you feel like they're taking over parts of your brain or body, there's clear defensive styles. You could, um, you know, if a voice throws fire at you, you could uh, go and cook something in the kitchen. That way you're taking the attack, putting it back in the external world where you want to live if that's your choice. Um, and the voice has like nothing more to do about it because you're using fire. Uh, there, there's all these strategies. Um, there's ways to standardize what type of voices attack. What do they want? How do they attack? How do you defend against every type of attack? I remember there was a, a person in one of my groups who, who told me that his voices were constantly telling him to hurt others. Um, and he was very distressed by wondering if he was a good person. And I told him very plainly, if you weren't a good person, everything would be backwards. You would want to hurt other people and your voices would be telling you to stop. Um, you know, the fact that you keep fighting against them and kind of reasserting that you don't want to do that shows that at your center, you are not a person who wants to hurt others across every model. In medical model, who cares if there's a bits of your subconscious coming through that your center is fighting against. And in all other models, it's not even you to begin with. Um, and, and he really wept from, from kind of relief, from having that confirmation finally that he was a good person and that the psychological attacks from his voices um, did not reflect his true character. Why does nobody collect these tools and share them? These situations happen to so many voice hearers. How does everyone have to figure it out on their own? Um, reconstructing yourself, you know, remembering who you were in terms of emotional memories from childhood, uh, thinking about your unique sense of humor as a way to separate yourself from the voices. There's so many strategies, um, but our communities instead discredited and given no authorship on, on how to be masters of our own experience. We're the ones that it is happening to. I appreciate the experts by training, I do. But we analyze our situation for hours every day for years. Of course, we have things to contribute. It should be common sense. Um, going into that, wrapping up with a bit on more on the discrimination to the community. Um, most voice hearers are not a threat to themselves or others, but are terrified to share this part of themselves publicly. Um, at that point, it's no longer stigma. It's just discrimination because they will, in fact, suffer great social and career costs of, of coming out as a voice hearer even if they're completely living the life they want and are no threat to anybody. Um, social media makes this even worse. Uh, in terms of medical progress, people are not having honest conversations with the medical professionals because they don't want uh, 
not only the increased dosages or possible hospitalizations, they don't want the feedback loop to their family um, that something is not going perfectly. Um, so the researchers are not noticing the patterns in, in our conflicts, in our tools, um, in our strategies. And everything kind of has been advancing only in terms of pharmaceutical and brain imaging for such a long time. But that's such a small portion of what's happening and, and only the tiniest option of what we have in terms of addressing it. If the focus is quality of life, the lived experience community must have a prominent, if not leading role in describing the approaches to hearing voices. It's almost common sense because there are hundreds of millions of us that have learned how to, how to navigate our situation to exactly the quality of life that we want. Um, wrapping up, being mindful of the time, um, locally people who are clear audience uh, kind of are able to be embraced by a community and we see that they have much higher quality lives uh, internationally. Uh, communities that embrace voice hearers also the voices become much higher quality in terms of friendship and mentoring. And uh, our stories are actually pretty awesome. You know, we have detailed conversations with deities or argue philosophy back and forth. Um, there's also a social waste just in terms of our creativity and, and what we can contribute if, if we were given kind of a green light to, to speak with confidence um, on our experience. So there, there's a huge creative loss for humanity as well. Um, hearing Voices groups, Hearing Voices Network, we build safe spaces to offer support tools and strategies, uh, peer workers, um, getting people with lived experience into the institutions to be part of the conversation. Uh, in New York, there's a consortium and its toolkits, New York City Peer Workforce Coalition, that really is, is driving this forward um, to kind of intersect our community with the experts by training and, and show what we have to offer. But of course, there's the issue of credibility and trust. Um, and ISPS, uh, very grateful that they bring together providers, academics, families, and those with lived experience. Um, I want to do a quick plug. This year is, is tough for ISPS US with, uh, with COVID. So um, any donations help. And uh, with, with that, I'm going to end it. Um, and kind of, yeah, and, and give it back to the group. Thanks a lot. Um, and um, let's see, I just unmuted you, Brenda, and if you could share your okay. video yeah, as well. Um, so do you two presenters have anything to say to each other before we open it up to the, um, the audience? Well, I think, I, I think it's really like valuable that our experiences are so different. Uh, because like, for instance, I only had a few, let's say, voices and somehow they disappeared. And um, so I, I don't have voices now anymore, but I do understand a lot of things that you say, like not being understood, or I, I wrote down some, some things that I, that like, um, what really struck me was that you said like pharma is like a dartboard. That's so true. <laughs> and it's like the most important word that I sort of remembered. And I always think of myself is the lack of uh, uh, humility, like, um, and that, that, how should I say that? I think that we should be more humble when we try to help people in a psychosis and not pretending we know, but trying to find out 
And that's like, I heard that in your story and that was very, yeah, valuable to me. And I do think that you can talk more slowly than I can. Damn, it's really this. <laughs> I should fucking be more calm. But it's like, I only have 30 minutes. Let's go, let's go. It's <laughs> more just something people listening to us. It's, uh... yeah. I think it's amazing you talk that fast and that vibrantly in your second language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just the nerves and the time. <laughs> right. I think you're exactly right. I think that if there's one thing that I would want people to take away, it is humility above everything else. We're in a situation that is not truly explained with a lot of different opinions. We just need to interact with each other as people. And if we bring that humility to the table, I think everything else will follow. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. All right. So maybe we'll jump into some questions. Brenda, what was helpful for you in sharing your experiences with your children and, and talking about it with your kids? Somebody had that question. Well, um, actually, we, we, we never had a taboo or anything with the children because, yeah, they were there right away. Um, they were never involved, which was actually a pity by caretakers. They were too young, they said. So they were like zero, <laughs> two and four at that time. And they said, oh, but they don't realize it. But the thing was that when I returned home after my compulsory admittance, that there were these little rascals, they were terrible. They were like shouting and biting and spitting because they didn't have the language to talk about like all these changes. And there was no one to explain it to them. So their language was like, terrible behavior and everyone's like oh yes oh wow maybe we should diagnose them <laughs> oh it's genetical <laughs> so i started writing stories for them and um to to talk about it as sort of a i told them it was like uh, and you made that comparison as well dimitri like it's like a nightmare a nightmare where you're still awake and if you talk about it like that, like, you know, when you know there's no one on your, your bed, you still look, that's what mommy had. <laughs> I was always looking underneath and behind the door and I was afraid. And, and it's like, yeah, you know, it might not be there, but let's just check, okay? And we've been always been very open about it with the children. And again, it's why I wrote this children's book now. And they don't know what taboo is. They don't know what stigma is. They're really nice to each other. If somebody's like, uh, <laughs> my son, he was like, oh, he was crying. And the other one said, what's wrong? Tell us. No, no, no. But you have to tell. Otherwise, you might have a psychosis like mom. <laughs> so they're like very open about everything. And, um, and they're even bragging about it. What they say on the playground, what does your mother do? My mother had a psychosis. What about yours? <laughs> They don't know, they don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah, I'm, so I'm gonna skip around with questions. I'm apologize, I'm sure we're gonna have more questions than what I'm gonna be able to answer them all, or to get them all answered, but I'm gonna skip around. So Dimitri, here's one. Can you offer an example of a voice ally situation that you cultivated and a little bit about how you did that, how you came yeah. up with an ally? Absolutely. Yeah. So. Um, as I was saying, I think voices are motivated by perspectives, emotions, their cost benefit and their opportunities, just like people are. Um, so there's this one voice, um, I call him Lumen. That's just my name for it. Um, and, and his whole thing was kind of bringing truth to the ecosystem and kind of 
keeping everyone honest. Um, and at first there was a lot of distrust that came from a place of distrust, but understanding his motivations, I actually said, wait, yeah, that's a great thing. You know, as, as many people who hear voices know, they kind of know your every thought anyway. So why not do that for the whole ecosystem? And we, we made an agreement that, you know, that would be the rule of the ecosystem, that kind of nothing deceitful would, would stay hidden, that truth would rise. And just like that, you know, by, by understanding that voice's motivations and saying, I am in agreement with it, we became allies. And since then, you know, if I'm particularly busy on something, you know, I'm trying to focus on a family member or on a work project and a hostile voice pops up, you know, I could call on Lumen even if, um, even if it's not truth related or kind of honesty related, but just as a friend and they sort of take each other's attention and I have an easier time focusing. So it really comes down to understanding the motivations and kind of being able to, to create agreements and alignments um, with the voices that, that you resonate with. Um, Brenda, um, could you say something about the more about the meaning you got out of your own psychosis? I think you said a, a little about it, but people I think are really interested in that concept of meaning and if you could share a little bit about how that worked for you. Well, of course it was uh, very much related to my pregnancy or me giving birth. And um, I wanted to know like the things that I saw or heard in my psychosis, what they meant, because of course everybody said that they weren't true. I had uh, like, for instance, there was child abuse, there were miscarriages, there were, there, there were a lot of themes coming back. And what the psychiatrist did with me, what was help, very helpful with me is, like I said, she dove into it and she was reading it as if it were a book, as if it's like, okay, this might not be true, but let's see what are the themes that are coming back. And the things that returned a lot was the motherhood. And for instance, there was, if I tell it, it's like, of course, how can not anyone see that? It's like, at every time I had this like delusion that I was pregnant and that I was going to lose my baby. And then of course, it's like, okay, I had four miscarriages before I got pregnant of my first child. But these are like miscarriages at seven, six, seven weeks. And well, a lot of people don't even call them miscarriages. It's like, what, six weeks? What, you know, you're pregnant since what, two weeks? Bah, that's not really being pregnant, is it? So it's ignored. And somehow for me, that felt like there was something that wasn't, yeah, I don't know, recovered yet. It was something painful. And, and somehow it came up again in the psychosis and all the miscarriages and, also, I gave birth to a third boy, three sons. <laughs> it's like people said, oh, that must drive you crazy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the thing was, I somehow had to find my role as a boy's mom as well. So there was a bit of grief there as well, but you cannot say that because it's a taboo to say that, oh yeah, it would have been nice to have a girl. But everyone's like, oh my God, it's a boy, three sons, really? So I, I had to look for my own identity as a boy's mom as well. And these were all things that came up in the psychosis. There was a lot with miscarriages. There's like the motherhood was a theme and injustice was a theme as well. I'm very susceptible for injustice, which is a very terrible thing in this world because there, there's a lot of injustice. And if I'm treated like I was treated, that's very bad, of course. They took away my motherhood and they sort of treated me not very 
well, in Justice Lee. So we came up with these teams and which feelings and until a certain level, we sorted out what this psychosis meant to me as a novel, as literature. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you could say more about it, but yeah, it, it at least addresses it and says something yeah. about it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so one person had a question like, how do you work on forming a positive relationship with voices, especially when they are seeming really intimidating or trying to take over? And it's just yeah. like, what, what are some ideas about that? I want to kind of, before I dive into that, there was one question I just saw that is so important that I feel like I need to address it right off the bat. And that, that's kind of the, the idea of, can my approach work for somebody in the midst of crisis? Do they have that level of self-insight um, to kind of use these tools? Um, it's a great call out. I think that when somebody is in true crisis, that is not where my, my experience helping people comes in. Um, year one of hearing voices could be the hardest, the most difficult, so much confusion, so much stimulus. Um, I, I am talking more about the long run and the broader perspective. Um, in terms of the actual question of how to, how to navigate the voices, um, they're stuck with you just like you're stuck with them. Um, and eventually, whatever abilities they claim to have or, or threats they make, eventually you'll see that it's bluffs, right? I, I always tell people, do you want the good news or the bad news about hearing voices? And whichever one they say, it's the same answer, um, which is no one's gonna show up at your door. You know, our community is broad enough, we're interconnected enough that um, we can pretty much guarantee you will never actually meet your voice, regardless of, of model. Um, so with that, there's this empowerment that is so critical. Um, knowing that if your voices have abilities, that you're still stronger, that if they're threatening you, they're bluffing. And after that, realizing, hey, you're stuck with me, just like I'm stuck with you. So we need to make the best of it. Um, and this, this might be harder in the first few months, but in the long run, your voices do react to logical arguments, maybe their own logic. Um, just to kind of close out the question, regardless of what a voice here believes, they got there linearly, right? Your voices and you have a linear progression of the things that you hear, even if it leads to some very strange beliefs, it is linear. And just like you got to a strange place linearly, you could get out of a strange place linearly. Understanding what arguments resonate with your voices and then guiding it into ecosystem, um, that works because they're stuck with you too. Um, yeah, so, Brenda, somebody asked you this, but both of you can address this about language. Like, what do you think of, like, I mean, sometimes people get told, well, you are psychotic or you have psychosis or, um, I mean, do you prefer like, like, well, this person has been diagnosed with psychosis or like, do you have other kinds of language you think that professionals should be using? Well, I think I'm, I'm, like because I'm writing my next last book on mental health care now and I'm writing a lot about the language we use um, in mental health care and I think that if you focus on what you hear or see is not what I hear uh, you have got these caretakers they're terrible yes you can see that but I don't you cannot like have a deeper <laughs> sort of um, grand canyon there 
than there by saying that you see it differently, I see it this way, and then focus on what I see is correct and is reality, and yours is probably psychosis. If you want to connect with someone, you have to listen to what he's exactly saying. And if he doesn't realize it's a, a, a sort of fictional voice, just listen to what it's saying. There is a meaning anyway. There is a feeling. It's like feelings are facts, no matter if it's true, like existing or not. I think you cannot connect if you start by posing, you are ill. It doesn't work. That's not going to happen. I th it's, in my opinion, it doesn't work like that. It's by starting to listen. Well, that's what I think. I, I very much agree. I think that, um, you know, if you go to a surgeon right now, they'll tell you a precise part of your organ that is doing this with these bacteria, you know, almost any other medical field is so precise. Psychiatry, the labels of psychosis, all that means is you sort of remind me of this other bunch of people. Um, that's all it means. And the, the medical approach is like, yeah, with this group of people that you kind of remind me of, this sometimes works. Um, so why do we have these labels with such, such a strength and, and such impact behind them when they don't, diagnose anything precise. They can't point to neurotransmitters. They can't point to an ill region, none of it. Um, so the kind of the language I prefer, like Brenda was saying, is that you're experiencing something that those around you um, are not experiencing. And as soon as you do that, you could go into the person's framework and say, oh, from your experiences, you know, if people were following you, where would the government get the resources when they're, you know, going nearly bankrupt over Corona? Like there is a way to kind of enter the other person's framework and guide them from there instead of shutting it down with the psychiatric label. So here's a question. This can really be for both of you. Um, have you found some people who come from the medical model who you feel understand you and the perspectives that you're sharing? Like how is it talking to people that are initially coming from the medical model about the kind of insights and perspectives you have? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm very grateful to my father who's on this call. He actually is a psychiatrist. So a uh, fun twist to the story in the last 10 minutes. Um, I have seen him and, and others from the medical model, you know, give, give that humanity to, to talk it out, to explore the beliefs and, and argue about it just like you would with somebody of the other political party or um, even somebody that believes the earth is flat. You know, there's that decency to talk it out. Um, and I, I have found people within the medical model that were willing to do that. Of course, when you have 10 years of training in a very specific way of looking at things, I understand some of the rigidity. Rigidity. I also understand you know, that very often medical professionals see people at their worst. They see the most in distress portion of our community at their moments of greatest distress. So yes, I get it why their perception is a bit skewed. Um, so maybe it's, it's specifically when I talk to medical model people not in a professional setting that were able to have these deeper conversations. Thank you. Um, what about, um, like what, what can be helpful to like voice hearers that are too anxious to talk to others and to connect with hearing voices, groups and all that? Um, any ideas for them? Sorry, can you repeat that? Sure. Um, just sort of like, I mean, 
because some of the stuff you were talking about how people can get help talking to other voice hearers and sharing these ideas. But what about like when people are too anxious to go talk to others about their voices? Because that is a common so thing. This is, this is like the pain in my heart is that I think that the, the roughly 7% of people that go through this, they're suffering alone is easily preventable suffering strictly because of stigma. Um, you know, if, if you're left-handed and you wanted to go talk to other left-handed people, it's not a big deal. It used to be like, you know, the sign of the devil or something, but as a society, we've moved on. So yeah, there's huge barriers and I don't have the golden answer. You know, there are online groups, there are other support groups, but that anxiety, where it's coming from is, is the huge social judgment on hearing voices. And until that goes away, all those tens and hundreds of millions of people are gonna keep suffering for no real good reason in the way that they could be helped if we could just talk to each other. Yeah. Um, Brittany, you talked some about how you were treated in a hospitalization um, and you said something about what's helpful in a crisis. Um, I mean, one worry I think a lot of um, family members have is that if they don't send somebody to the hospital, that things will just get worse. And then some people are told like, oh, if they aren't given antipsychotic drugs right away, that they may never come back from psychosis. Um, what, what do you have to say about that, about your ideas about crisis? Well, well first of all, I think that um, if somebody is sent to a psychiatric ward, for instance, it's sometimes because um, the family can no longer handle it. Um, I think it's very heavy for the family to deal with somebody in a psychosis. And that means that if, in my case as well, if I was, if I was admitted in a psychiatric hospital, I think it's because it was too hard for my husband to deal with me anymore in the context. But uh, on the other hand, the problem was that somehow then when I was inside the psychiatric hospital, hospital they sort of had it that was a totally different world. And apparently my husband was no longer a part of that. And then he was like, oh, whoa, whoa, but that's my wife. And I say, yeah, we're taking care of her. And then there's suddenly nothing anymore. And you just cut like the relation we seem to have. And for a long time, I was very, very angry with my husband because he told me for better and for worse. And it wasn't getting any worse than that, was it? So the thing is that somehow in in like the, the, the way we look at psychosis is that we think that we can take someone's brain and put it in a jar and then look at it and then sort of inject some medication in there and then think that if we've done all that and maybe give some mandalas as well and then we can just put it back in the same context that it will have solved everything. Of course not because we have to look how the brain will react within the in the context and so it's very strange how they deal with psychosis as if, yeah, and, and of course everyone, someone was saying like neuro, it's one of the, the psychiatric problems that are looked at at a, the most neurological with l less influence of trauma and context. And it's like, no, it's this brain disease. And that's where we go completely wrong, I think. Because when do we call something psychosis? And when do we call something depression? with some psychotic 
characteristics. So where does it begin? Where does it end? But the way we treat psychosis is completely, well, nowadays is totally, yeah, bleh. <laughs> strange, mad. <laughs> yeah. Katrina, did you want to say anything about crisis? Oh, yeah, I, I do want to also point out the time. Um, maybe we could do a quick uh, wrap up pitch for ISPS and then Brendan and I could stay on for another 10 minutes to keep going with questions. All right. Yeah. So um, again, I want to just really thank everybody who, who showed up here. Um, and thanks for your donations. Um, and um, if you are interested in Brenda's book, please just email in response to the email that you got about the webinar and I'll collect uh, the, your email address and we'll make some kind of arrangements for books to be sold in the United States. If you're in Europe, obviously you can just buy them on Amazon UK. Um, I wanna let you know that ISPS is gonna have an online conference this fall. Don't have any details yet, but hopefully you'll get emails about that. Um, and um, let's see, Marie left a message in chat about the book club, <laughs> if you didn't notice that. That's something else that you might be interested in. And yeah, we're gonna stay on and uh, try to at least get to a, a few more questions for a few more minutes, but um, thanks for coming. Really appreciate it. All right. Also everyone, my, my email is just my first name dot last name at gmail.com. So feel free to reach out if you have any extra questions. I'm always happy to kind of start a digital relationship. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, here's a question about voices. Like, what are the most frustrating things that professionals say about voices and what kind of statement should people really avoid making about them? That was the question. I think that um, the biggest statement that is incorrect is this concept of imaginary. Um, it's, it's almost treated as if, as if it's like a thought process rather than an experience, right? There, there isn't even the acknowledgement that we are genuinely experiencing the world in this way. Um, and, and so kind of the, the labels of it being completely imaginary, like a child may have an imaginary friend, it, it's not what it is. It's closer to kind of seeing color, you know, having an extra set of stimulus that feels at least partially external. Um, and just even giving us that validation that what we're experiencing is genuinely being experienced, um, you know, would, would go a long way. Okay. Um, and what if people don't believe they're hearing voices or like, let's say they don't believe that the ideas they have are non-consensual. Is there anything you want to say about how to work with that? Um, so if I'm understanding the question correctly, you know, what do you do if somebody is unwilling to, to let go of strange beliefs? Um, at least, is that kind of the correct interpretation? Um, I got distracted there for a minute. Like, for one thing, somebody might think they're not hearing voices. They might not even be aware that what they're hearing is something that other people wouldn't experience. You know, like, let's say they're in their apartment and they hear hearing their neighbors talk and they think, that they're just literally hearing their neighbors talk. So I, I could be wrong on this. In my anecdotal experience with the community, um, it's very, very rare that, that there isn't like a clear difference between um, a voice that is labeled as hearing voices compared to others. It may sound the same for like a moment, but most people, 
when they say hearing voices, it's not with their ears. It's having internal thoughts that feel as if they're coming from outside. Um, that, that's the more common experience, at least. So the movie is misrepresented a lot with like these full flesh and body people that turn out to not be real. Um, I've never met anybody who had anything close to that experience. Um, so past, it's usually not the problem to kind of identify with the person what you're arguing about as real or not real. It's more about navigating that argument. I can say that I talk to people that they do, do have that confusion, like they think they're actually hearing their neighbors talking or they think their hearing is really good. One thing I've done is just have people will turn on a recorder and it'd be nice to have a recording of what they're saying and that, you know, um, and, and, and it, though people can get confused the other way too. I, I had somebody who um, thought, you know, she knew she was a voice hearer and then she thought she was hearing her neighbors talk about how they wanted to get rid of her dog. She went to her psychiatrist to up her medication. And then she found out from her apartment manager that those very neighbors had come around and were trying to lobby to get rid of her dog. So she had actually heard them accurately, but decided they were voices. So there's, there's some confusion there. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. They're definitely, can, a bit different from what I said earlier. Yes, I acknowledge that. Um, I'm going to, there's so many messages I'm going to have to skip around some, but like when, if ever, is it appropriate to force treatment on someone experiencing delusion or paranoia and how do we like really better advocate for people that are resisting the medical model? How do you, you know, like, I don't know, it's complex questions. People are, resi you know, it's resisting, but people around them are scared. Yeah. It's of course very difficult because for instance if you endanger other people or something um for instance i i went to a seclusion room well i still don't get it why but apparently yeah my aggression scared others um the thing is that what happens well at least in belgium is that and i'm looking for the word i think it's um there was just too many things like and seclusion room and restraints and medication and and there was like there there were so many things that were opposing on me and there was no freedom whatsoever. I thought afterwards maybe seclusion room without like being tied down would have been something or seclusion room without the medication would have been something. But why do we do the and 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 and? I mean, that's just too much. Can we just start with one thing there and then <laughs> have a look at it? So I, I do understand that there are, for instance, somebody in a complete crisis that it's necessary to intervene in a way, but in a way, one way, not like five ways, medication and tying down and taking away the family. I mean, in my case, I think it would have been an option to bring me to a seclusion room. And even I would even have agreed by tying me down, but not leaving me alone. <laughs> if they would have sent my husband with me, and even if they had put him next to me on a mattress and I was able to scold at him, okay? <laughs> but I can't do anything, you know, I'm tied down, so I'm, I'm not a danger, but why leave me alone for me? that being alone was the 
most terrible thing I've ever experienced because you're actually fighting with demons in your head, let's say, and the message they give you is now you have to do that alone. And when you've sort of conquered these demons, then we can talk to you. What an idea. <laughs> it's like telling somebody you broke your arm and when it's like fixed again, you can come up again. It's, it's a very strange way. So I do understand that sometimes interventions are necessary, but do we have to <laughs> sort of add all these interventions up? I definitely agree with that. And I, I want to comment too. When we say that we have the right to interfere in somebody else's life, where does it stop, right? Does it eventually take on uh, political beliefs? Does it take on um, strange quirks, you know, that we do that somebody hums uh, or like wears odd socks or, or, or clothing? I've been obsessed with socks on this webinar. Um, I think that interventions should very strictly be to prevent a high probability of threat to self or others. And the only measures taken should be those that prevent that threat. Um, you know, by the time that you were in the room, if you didn't show a risk of being a threat to yourself, why did they need to tie you down? That's going too far. In terms of leaving you alone, that's not at all relevant to preventing harm to self or others. It's not justified. And I think that we need to take an absolute stand um, about our freedom being the more important value than kind of consensus thinking. And that the only acceptable time is strictly and only to prevent harm. Mm -hmm. Here's a question getting back to he hearing voices. Um, and someone wrote that it might seem that making an agreement that something that's experienced as an intrusion is maybe giving away power. You know, so something intrudes and then, oh, I'm gonna work out an agreement with you that some people might experience that as giving away power. What do you say to that? Absolutely. So I think that making agreements that you can't enforce as an ecosystem, um, you know, is, has its risks because you lose credibility with your voices, you're giving it something that then it doesn't give anything back. Um, the actual relationships of building an ecosystem could be far more complicated. But with that said, if you create an agreement with known penalties, you know, whether enforced by other voices or kind of um, even in your own structure of what you will and will not give the voices who follow the agreement, such as time at night where you'll talk to them for half an hour, um, once you can provide rewards and punishment for breaking an agreement, it becomes a lot more powerful. Um, I know, including myself, unfortunately, we don't go through expert classes in negotiation, but I think it's very much the same principles. Be careful of giving away something for free, but also try to move towards the best possible outcome with agreement and harmony because you are stuck with each other. Well, most, for most of us, we will be. Um, this brings us more into current reality. Do you have, do you guys have any tips for those um, people in the current crisis who maybe are in literal isolation and they don't have much coping tools or maybe they're even starting to experience psychosis that's in relation to the isolation? Do you have any ideas about that? And that's a big subject right there. Yeah, well, the thing I had when, when all this started, like, it, I don't know how you guys sense it, but it's like, finally, everybody will understand what a psychosis is, <laughs> because it's like, what is happening? The whole world is like, oh, my God, and, and there's this virus, and it's 
taking over the world and it 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 really sounds like a psychosis and in the beginning i was like what a relief i never have to explain again like the fear or whatever because everyone's experiencing it now so <laughs> that's a good thing <laughs> the bad thing is it what if the psychosis is related to the COVID? of course because in a way and I do think that is, but I don't know how Dimitri looks at that. I do think that psychosis has a sort of, um, there's always a sort of link to reality. There, It's not all not true. Uh, and again, that's why I say like feelings are facts. Of course, there's in my, in my, well, the thing is I had all these miscarriages and that's because I once had miscarriages. So there's always a relation to the reality. And of course, what happens now is if you have a psychosis related to COVID, it is reality. And it's of course not soothing us because everybody is suffering from it. And that, and if we're now distant from each other and you don't have anyone to help, it's very difficult because you have to look for empowering tricks. Like what are someone's, let's say talents or ways of expressing himself uh, like for me that was writing or i would advise somebody now to please write down sing uh draw or whatever he thinks because these thoughts have to go out of your head in a way and and express them that's probably the first step to do because if you ex if you express them you acknowledge them and you you say okay they're there and it's okay that they're there now, I think. So that's probably the first and maybe the only thing in my opinion that we can do now is write them down, sing about it, talk about it or whatever. Yeah. I will also say that there's some great resources on ISPSUS, some great resources on Hearing Voices Network, either USA or in, in Europe, or if you have uh, branches in other countries. Um, so those would be the two places I would recommend to go to, to look for resources. At the end of the day, different strategies are gonna resonate for different people. I don't know myself how to help you if you know the isolation and from COVID is, is creating a, an issue for you, but uh, there are places to go look for support. So I do recommend doing that. Yeah, lots of online um, hearing voices groups now, um, for example. If, if people are up to add, accessing that and one thing is is just to access something like that when people are really distressed and scared they have a really hard time organizing themselves to do that so well it's uh it's 145 i do have to head out soon um is there kind of a list of, of questions from the chat that maybe we could look at later yeah i believe that we're going to try to save i don't have them all conveniently listed but we'll try to save the whole chat and then if i send you that then you can piece through it and see, oh, are there some? And then if you email that to me, then I can email that out to all the participants. Oh, here's what Dimitri says or Brenda yeah. says or something or, like that. Or what Dimitri says as well. I'm, I'm into an online relationship as well. <laughs> so if you just want to send your questions to my mailbox or whatever, that's always an option as and well. And was that on your slides, your email address? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's okay. on there, yeah. And, 
and Dimitri, when you send your slides, just make sure your email address is on that, and then everyone will have your email address. Absolutely. We can email you directly. Because, yeah, I, I skipped through questions, and I didn't get to all of them. I apologize to the people I skipped past. It didn't necessarily mean your question was bad. I was disorganized. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, somebody asked about resources to learn more about building relationships with voices. I know there's a whole bunch of ISPS US webinars that you can find online. If you go to the ISPS-US YouTube channel, one of them is by Mark Hayward and it's about practicing relating differently with voices. It might be helpful, um, but yeah, there's lots of stuff. And this was a great presentation. I, I really enjoyed it. I just feel like both of you could have said so much more, but I also thought it was just really valuable to have more than one perspective on yeah. something like this. Absolutely. I'll come over once this COVID thing is over. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Okay. okay. All right. Thank you. Well, so, so what I'll do, I'll keep the chat as we sign off, I'll keep the chat open if people want to say things back and forth to each other on chat. We'll keep that open for a bit. Does that sound okay. good? Okay. All right. Thanks. Yeah, thanks again. Really appreciate you. Give my okay. gratitude to Ron, right? Um, for organizing all of this. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Bye. Love and chocolate from Belgium. <laughs> bye bye. bye.